Welcome to the Bringing the Human Back to Human Resources podcast. I'm Tracy Chernoff, and I've spent my entire professional career in HR. Each week, we'll explore the delicate balance between people and business with the aim to reconnect the two and create meaningful outcomes. Listen in as I share my own experiences, challenge the status quo, and chat with guests from various industries about our mission to bring the human back to human resources. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here for another week. And, you know, with every week comes an exciting new guest, unless it's just me recording solo. But this week, I have an exciting new guest. Um, And let me tell you all about her. Her name is Beth Banks-Cohn. She's an accomplished organizational consultant, senior executive coach, entrepreneur, and thought leader with more than 25 years of success in the healthcare, pharma, biotech, IT, high-tech, retail, engineering, and manufacturing industries. When smart, forward-looking companies need to reimagine their organization, they turn to Audra Change Architects. Leveraging her extensive experience in corporate culture, Beth is a valuable asset as she helps companies use organizational transformation to reach the next level of growth. Her broad areas of business experience include IT, manufacturing, sales, marketing, engineering, operations, and human resources, which we all know and love. Beth applies her expertise to business initiatives that might include, but are not limited to, corporate culture, organizational design, M&A, cultural due diligence, communication, and training. She's regarded by many as the authority on culture, leadership, and change. Beth is a sought-out speaker on key aspects of executing, executing, oh my gosh, let me start that part over key aspects of executing organizational change initiatives that stick. Her passion for educating and guiding people have positioned her clients to feel empowered to thrive in an era of uncertain times. Beth began her career at Johnson & Johnson, and over her 16-year tenure, she held various positions of progressive seniority. Beth also holds a PhD in human and organizational systems from the Fielding Graduate University. Her dissertation entitled Culture Makers, The Role of Organizational Culture in Individual Decision-Making Showed How Culture is an Active Rather Than a Passive Part of Organizations. This is actually my favorite part of Beth's bio. Beth also holds an MA in Organization Development from Fielding Graduate University, an EDM in Human Resources Education from Boston University, and a BA in International Relations from Simons University. From Simmons University, yes from Simmons University. She is certified in the Colby Index, the Denshin Culture Index, and Myers-Briggs. Beth has authored numerous publications and has written for Change Matters on bizcatalyst360.com. So without further ado, Beth, welcome to the podcast and welcome to you and your extensive background and educational experience to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. I know. I was listening to that and I'm thinking, wow, it's a long time to read my bio now. I don't know what that means. <laughs> No, I think it's great. I mean, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about this recently that in at least it's it feels this way to me in in the American society that when people have all of this experience that it's like they're overqualified or, you know, there's this it, it at some point there's a shift. People have too little experience and then they get that experience and they become more senior in their role and then they have 20 plus years of experience they apply for a role and they're told they're overqualified. And at some point, we as a community have to, and a culture have to understand that experience is what helps us to grow and to learn from one another. And so I I think it's great to have a really long bio. I hope to have a really long bio one day. Yeah, I hope you do too. I hope you do Thank too. You. Listen, it makes me, it makes me able to help companies 
in, in a much better way. Like how I can help companies today is really different than how I could help them, you know, 20 years ago. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're talking about a topic this week or on this episode that is really difficult for a lot of people and that is change. And I'm sure, you know, if this were a, a not so family friendly podcast, I'd say drink every time you hear change, but Hey, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe someone will do that anyway, but you know, take, take that, uh, loosely drink, drink some orange juice or drink a champagne or a mimosa, whatever you want. But, you know, I think we'll use that term change a lot on this episode because we have to, in order to talk about all of the ins and outs. So I guess just starting off, what makes change so hard and why do so many people grapple with it? Well, I think first of all, as humans, we're really hardwired for homeostasis, like for things to stay the same. And so it's just sort of, it's just sort of part of everybody's DNA for things to stay the same. So I think that's one part of it. But I think even beyond that, I think one of the things is, is that we make change harder than it is by the nature of how we manage it in organizations. And as individuals, we also often make it harder than it is because instead of, instead of thinking about the change from the perspective of, you know, what can I, what can I learn from it? What can I, what can I take from it? What can I, uh, what can I bring to it so that it's not so jarring? Um, We just, we just don't want it to happen because it's not a good time. It's, you know, I have three kids. I can't have change. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't sort of make it, make it work in the lifestyle that I have right now. So we want everything to sort of fit in with us, but change doesn't care, right? Change, change is just change. And so it just, it's just going to happen. And then you have to figure out how to, how to go with it in some, in some way or another. But I think from an organizational perspective, we do, I think we're better at it than we were 20 years ago often. Uh, but I think we, I think we still underestimate the people that we work with that work for us. And I think Mm -hmm. we underestimate the impact of change. And I think there's this sort of wisdom going around that I don't think is very much really wisdom, which is, oh, well, you know, if we have, if we change often enough, people are just going to figure out how to adapt. And especially (laughs) after the pandemic, because we did, right. All of a sudden, like one day we worked in an office and the next day we worked at home, we did adapt because we had to, it was a crisis, but a crisis change is different. And we do different things in a crisis change than we do in a change that's going on. Um, that could you know, take six months to, to, to implement or a year to implement. And so it, it really is different. And com- companies really just want it to be over, right? They just, they mm-hmm. want to announce the change. They want the change to happen. They want everybody to get in line and then they want everyone to get back to work. And that never happens. Mm-hmm. And so they could want that. And it and it's not even a fantasy because it just never happens. Like, it's not like it happened once. Like, it didn't happen ever. And and I, I think companies just sort of buy into that. Oh, this is, you know, if it just, if it, if it, if we just explain it well enough, right? If we just yeah. train people, if we just tap into like their feelings about it. And it, it, it just doesn't work that way. First of all, we focus way too much on affect when it comes to change. That's my opinion about how people feel about it. And I think, and I, I think it's really important, but I think it's not the only important thing. I mean, we have three parts of the mind. Um, Kathy Colby from the creator of the Colby index talks about this a lot. And, uh, and the three parts of the mind affective is one 
cognitive is the other. And from a cognitive perspective, companies think all they have to do is train people. They have to communicate, right? If we just communicate well enough, but it's mm-hmm. not about communication and it's not about training. I mean, it is to a certain extent, but there's another piece that they're really missing from a cognitive, which is the change actually has to make sense to people. And they have to, they have to lead them through their own thought process as leaders. They've got, been through a thought process that brought them to this day when they announced this change. They have to lead people through that. By the time they get to the announcement, executives don't want to talk about it anymore. They just want it done. And that's right. great for them, but it's terrible for everybody else. And it's terrible for the success of the change. And then there's a third part of the mind, which nobody ever talks about, called the conative or the doing part of the mind, which is where our instincts sit. And how we instinctively solve problems when we're motivated to solve a problem comes from this part of the mind. Now, motivation is an affect, but that instinct comes from another part of our mind, which we companies hardly ever think about, unless they work with me or another consultant that uh, really um, works with this three parts of the mind, um, is that it's, you know, if sometimes you change the organization so much that the instincts that help people be successful are now no longer needed and people don't know what to do with themselves right? because mm. you've changed their job from A to B and they were great at A, but they're going to be terrible at B. And, and, and they're, they're, it's just a, a way of doing things that just doesn't make sense to them in the way that they solve problems. And companies definitely don't take that into consideration because that's way too down at the granular level mm-hmm. for most companies. But it is it is really important in the planning stages anyway to be taking that kind of thing into account. Absolutely. Wow, I've talked a lot. I'm going to no, stop. I, no, I, no, please don't stop talking because you're sharing a lot of really great insight. Um, the first thing that I'm, I'm going to work backwards in my thoughts, but the first thing that I'm thinking about right now is how important buy-in is to individuals, but also for companies to make changes because, you know, and I've talked about this a few times on the podcast already, that buy-in was like the first thing that I learned in my career, that if you could get the buy-in from your audience, you know, whoever that might be, given what you're rolling out or what you're doing, that it's going to be much easier for change management purposes. That's my first thought. The second thought that I have is that there at one point, and maybe companies still, some companies still feel this way, there was this like push to put people in or on top of projects or working on things that catered to their opportunities and not their strengths to build up their opportunities, which I can like, you know, I guess I can reason that. However, I come, right. I compare it to like when you're in elementary school or middle school and the te- you're at the top of the class and the teacher puts you with someone who is not even trying and they're doing that to build up the student that's not trying to make them a better student. But in turn, you're making the really good student potentially a lesser off student because of the the lack of focusing on their strengths, right? And so I, I'm not a teacher by any stretch of the imagination, but it makes me think about how that is like such an archaic thought. Why not just cater to people's strengths so you're getting the best out of each person? So I'm going to pause there. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, what you just said is, is um, a principle of positive psychology, which is, which is play to people's strengths, right? And if you if their strengths are strong enough, their their opportunities, as you call them, won't matter. Mm-hmm. And when I when I coach people, it's one of the things I really try to focus on is like really, unless they're like really not 
doing something that they really need to do is really what are your strengths and how can we play to them so that fixing these other things isn't so much of a burden. I mean, in organizations, I have to say, I believe that it's, it's contributes to toxicity is there's a hyper focus on mm-hmm. fixing people, mm-hmm. right? You should be better at this and you should be better at that. Instead of saying, Hey, you know what? You're amazing at this. Like you, you are an amazing organizer. You're you like, I just have to like say something and you already have a plan in place, right? That's amazing. So instead of playing on that strength, you know, they'll be like, but you know, you're not, you know, when you, when we're trying to get, when we're trying to get, you know, information, you're not so good at gathering information. So, or, or researching. So we should just make you do that all the time. Right. So you'll get better at it. But here's the thing about instinct. This is where, when you're, when you, when you have an instinct to, to uh, solve a problem in, in a certain way, if your way of doing is organizing and not gathering and sharing information, making you gather and share information is never going to get better for you. Like it's mm-hmm. always going to be a struggle. You are never going to get better at it. And instead of a company saying, we're just going to make sure that you're the planner and not the gatherer of information. They're like, no, 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 we, we, you need to get better at that. Mm-hmm. And, and people can learn how to get better at that. But honestly, why would you want to invest your time and money in that when you're when your employees, if they're really working right. towards their strengths or with their strengths, are going to be amazingly productive for you. Yeah, it's really a good point. It made me think about what we were talking about right before we started recording, which was, you know, you were saying that you're not much of a like planner in some ways, and I'm not either. Um, I don't like to, I don't pre-write questions for the podcast. I don't do that because I feel my instinct is always to just kind of like fly by the seat of my pants and just like go for it. And that's really where I feel most comfortable. And some people even thinking about that makes them highly uncomfortable. Like I have recorded with people who could not even imagine not having questions prepared for a guest. And it just, you know, it makes me think about how valuable people's uh, differences are that, you know, having someone like us in an organization who can just like wing it potentially and go right into something and feel prepared, feel ready to go versus someone who's going to take whatever steps necessary to make themselves feel comfortable ahead of something. Like there's so much value in both of those personality types or characteristics in an organization. And when you're talking about how companies are so focused on fixing, it's so true. It's why there's an annual review process. Anyone can try and tell me that it's for merit. It's not. I am like a big advocate against um, these like formal processes. Like I think it's important to review performance, but performance should be reviewed consistently, not just once a year or twice a year. But my whole, uh, spiel here is that you know an annual review focuses so much on what we need to do better looking ahead what we need to do differently going forward instead of celebrating the success of the past year but also it's so uh it's so much of like looking in the past versus thinking about okay you're really good at x how can we leverage that more because I can only imagine that someone having that conversation is going to leave feeling so much more valued because who the heck wants to work on something that they don't enjoy or that caters to their opportunities or things that don't come intuitively to them? I certainly wouldn't want to be doing that. I do think that some of the some of the challenge here comes from a lack of understanding generational differences and that, you know, in my parents' time, 
their experience was the only thing that people cared about. But now it's almost like there's been a shift because people do jump around so much more. And there is this, I think, understated understanding or belief that, you know, someone with even like me, 10 years of experience could do the job of someone who has 20 years of experience. I don't know. I'm throwing out a lot of generalizations there, but this is just like a working theory of mine that there is a, a huge miss in understanding generational differences and appreciating that, again, with with age comes knowledge and experience and that there needs to be some sort of hyper-awareness on how we're treating candidates with the experience that we feel then is too much experience. Like, why should there be such a thing as too much experience? So anyway, I realize I have gone on such tangent here trying to explain my thoughts, but what are your thoughts on generational gaps and how they affect change, how they, they, um, how change is affected by generational gaps as well? Yeah, it's such a it's such a, an important topic to talk about, and I think um, having been the, the involved in being the victim of age discrimination and my husband as mm-hmm. well, it's you know it, it's it's just her fault, mm-hmm. and this whole idea it really is about money, right? Because why would you hire somebody that you would have to pay for their experience, right? when, when you could hire somebody with less experience and clearly you don't value the role because if you valued the role, you would think, Oh, let's get somebody with really good experience and let's pay for it. And then that'll save us a lot of headaches. Right. Hmm. Um, no, we think, well, but if we just hire somebody with less experience, we could pay them half and then we could save half the money. So it's like a weird, it it is like a weird weird. dynamic. And, uh, but I do, I, I do think, I do think it's quite interesting to implement change today and it is really different than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, in, in that, in that today, uh, people are not as, um, accepting of the bullshit. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to mm. say that? Yeah. Um, yeah. You're not accepting <laughs> as accepting of, of that. Like, so, you know, 20 years ago, somebody could stand up in front of the room and say, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're making this change. We're going to have to lay off people where, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And, and uh, I once had this happen at, in an organization um, where I was sitting there and they and the and then the person said, you should all feel lucky that you have jobs. Hmm. And I thought and, and like no one said anything like today. They, so, somebody would stand up and say, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah, like, right. Somebody would stand up and say, how dare you say that to us? You just yeah. announced that 20 percent of us are losing our jobs we're all thinking we're the ones and you're, and you're standing up there. Like how pompous can you be right today? People wouldn't stand for that. They just wouldn't. And by the way, good for them. Like I look at young people today and I look at what they will not accept organizationally. And I think to myself, good for you. Good Mm -hmm. for you. Because the generation before me and my generation, we just sucked it up and got back to work. Right. But this generation won't do it. And honestly, I'm thrilled because it holds leaders to a higher standard. And I, I I really, I really think that it it, it has changed the way that I work with companies on change, because sometimes when I go in, somebody will say to me, well, we're, this is the change that we're going to make. And I'll be like, okay, well, sort of walk me through it. Explain to me how you got to this point. And they'll get in the middle of it. And I'll be like, listen, I don't, I don't mean to be 
disruptive or anything, but are you actually serious that like, this is what you want to do? Like, this sounds like based on your, at what you're telling me, this sounds like a terrible idea. Right. So I, I've always been that person that would stand up and say, what the heck sure. is wrong with you? Right. That's why I'm a consultant and I don't work in a company anymore. And, but I, I do think that sometimes companies think, oh, well, we're just going to, you know, we're just going to say this and it's going to be fine. And I'll be like, I want you to, I want you to explain to me how you're going to explain that to other people and make it make sense because it doesn't make any sense to me. But I think that that, I think companies, like I said at the beginning, companies underestimate their people and they yeah. underestimate what their people are. First of all, they underestimate their smarts, right? So they hire smart people and then they tell them to shut up and get back to work, right? right? So they underestimate people's need to really be able to justify in their own mind and really get to that evaluation level of cognition, like not just get the memo and say, okay, this is what we're going to do without questioning it. And today people are more vocal about that and they hold their leaders to higher standards. I mean, I've worked with young people that say to me, I'm not working in this company anymore. I don't respect the leadership. I mean, when, when you have a generation of people that say that, a, you better be way better at your leadership and mm -hmm. you better you better be implementing things in your company that really make sense that are going to drive the organization forward and you're hiring smart people you need to make sure that they can justify it in their own mind it 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 goes back to the three parts of the mind you you have to you you have to be thinking broader than just we're going to make this decision. We've made it. It's based on numbers, not based on whether or not we can do it. It's not based on um, any anything other than what the spreadsheet tells me, how much money we can make if we do this. It's like layoffs. It's like, well, they say that if we lay off this many people, we're going to save all this money and then that'll mm. that'll allow us to you know, make our numbers this year. I'm like, yeah, yeah. But then you're going to lose all these people and all this organizational knowledge. So next right. year, when you want to grow, what are you going to do? Hire new right. people? that don't have the organizational knowledge? Yeah. No, it's a thousand percent true. I was just speaking with another podcast guest about this, that Gen Z is like exceptional. And I think, you know, I'm a millennial, so I am uh, firmly positioned between uh, really feeling like I need to just stick it out and get back to work and all that. And then also um, having this like, oh, well, I can speak up. I can do So I feel like the millennial uh, is an is an ombre. It's kind of like a, a painted picture of both, you know, the prior generation and the, the generation after us. And I think Gen Z does, is really remarkable in the way that they don't accept anything less than what they expect. And I get it there. You know, we heard this when I was growing up too, like, oh, your generation's so entitled, your generation's this. Everyone says that about every generation after them, right? Because there's something that they did better than we did. That's just how it goes. Um, but Gen Z, I mean, I think what's really cool is that they, there is a whole, there's a, even an, an entirely different workforce out there. Like I was just talking about how influencers and like this whole bubble of work and jobs in social media alone is a totally new adventure. It's a totally, it's an, an advent, right? Like it didn't exist when I was growing up. And so you're right. I mean, when something is not meeting someone's expectations in this younger generation, they're going to find something else. And I can really applaud that, that, um, you know, unwavering sense of what is right. I think that's really amazing. And I would never discourage someone from having that. And I also think when we think about some of these generational gaps, 
you're right, there is ageism. This is exactly what I was really attempting to get at that, you know, there's uh, when we talk about like company decisions, there are business leaders, hopefully from various generations representing company interests, sometimes not. But within those decisions, people who are ultimately making those day-to-day decisions are potentially not even looking at the big picture. How does experience benefit the company? How does this person or how could this person impact us from bringing all of this knowledge? Even if they cost $30,000 more a year, is it worth it for us? Is there is there an ROI that we can expect there? Um, and so I, I think thinking about the generational gaps, really the only way that we could probably solve this is by appreciating differences in our generations and appreciating experience more rather than just looking to save a couple dimes. It always ends up coming down to money. This is the reality. I've been very fortunate to, like any time that I've had to execute or support a layoff process, that it's always been a last in first, uh, last in first out and also performance-based decision, not necessarily you know, looking at who's most experienced because that I agree that is like a a surefire way to, um, cut your arm off for the next year if you have to grow. But when we think about how organizations are operating through time, like, you know, wavering times, I think in your bio, it was called uncertain times, which is true. I think we're always living through uncertain times. I, part of this in my mind, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this too, is not just making a decision because we feel it's right, but actually asking enough people within the organization who are decision makers for their opinions and for their thoughts, because that's where, you know, otherwise you have groupthink and groupthink isn't good for anything because then every single person is just thinking the same way and you're always making the same decisions with the same thought process and not challenging one another. And finally, my, my last point before I pass it back to you is that this concept of hiring smart people and then not allowing them to be the smart people that we've hired, you know, know, making it difficult for them to make decisions, not giving them enough credit. All of that is the biggest issue that I have when it comes to change management or even the way that organizations are developing themselves. And so I really want to expand on that too. But before we get there, like what, do you have any like thoughts on that generational piece and decision-making side of things. If your company is remote or hybrid, then you know just how difficult it can be to grow your company's culture beyond a pre-scheduled Zoom happy hour or occasional lunch and learn. Well, this week's sponsor is here to solve that. They're called CultureBot. CultureBot has devised what will likely become the gold standard for growing and blossoming a company culture inside of Slack. The app is like a sidekick for any HR or people professional, automating a lot of the mundane tasks you probably are forgetting to do on a daily basis. Things like birthday and work anniversary celebrations, team shout outs and kudos, employee introductions and remote games. It even has health and wellness tips and conversation starters. If that piques your interest, this will get you even more excited. Today, I'm able to share a special promotion for listeners of the podcast. You can get your first six months of CultureBot for 50% off. Plus, if your team is under 25 employees, CultureBot is free forever. So if you're looking for a way to create a culture of appreciation and drive increased engagement and togetherness across your team, I definitely recommend checking out CultureBot. 
Go to getculturebot.com slash humanhr. That's getculturebot.com slash humanhr to get the offer. Plus, I've added the link in the show notes, so you can just click right there. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, listen, smart companies really take a look at their workforces when they're really forced to, to me, like you said, layoffs have to be the last resort. I mean, honestly, the last resort. But let's say you get to that point. It really is looking at the organization holistically and saying, who who are our most valuable people? Given what we're what we need to do, right? We're laying off for a reason, right? There's an it, there's a problem. So given the problem that we need to solve, and then wanting to get back to profitability, who who are our most valuable people? And then you have to justify it. So it's not like and and it isn't based on money. It's based on sort of the value. So I think mm-hmm. there's a I think that I think it's really important to do that. I think part of it is, is that sometimes companies don't appreciate that organizational knowledge, right? They were the, they, they really, you know, they really think what they need is somebody new who has different and innovative ways of thinking about things. And I'm not saying that they don't, but I'm saying that then it, it becomes to them an either or, which I, which I think is a mistake, right? You have to have a blend of people who are going to challenge you and think really differently and come from a completely different perspective. But you also have to have people who, have great organizational knowledge that that can draw on things that have worked in the past that will continue to work because of the industry that you're, that you're in or the kinds of products that you have. And and I think sometimes companies think it's an either or. You know, it's it's like it's like I, I talked to somebody the other day about solid citizens, right? We in organizations you need solid citizens. You need people who are going to come to work every day. They're going to show up. They're going to do their job. They're going to do it well. They're not going to be like looking for the next promotion. They're not going to be looking for the next adventure. They just want to do their jobs. And mm-hmm. if you, if you, if you all of a sudden think, oh no, I'm not going to value that as much as I value that whippersnapper that I just hired, that's got all these amazing ideas, but can't figure out how to talk to people well enough to get them to adopt them. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you can't have all of those kinds of people in a company and you don't want to have just solid citizens, but you need a blend. It's right. like, it's like the parts of diversity, equity, inclusion that we don't talk about. It's like those solid citizens are so important. And and I I talked to somebody who the other day who was a solid citizen, and she's like, my boss keeps saying to me, well, what are my career goals? And I I, I just I just want to come to work every day and do a really great job. Like he, that's not good enough for him. What do I do? And I thought, oh, I wish I could talk to that manager because yeah, you know you you have a solid citizen and you like want her to become like a superstar like for what it's not even what you want right companies need to your point companies need those solid citizens i call them solid performers because that's what our term is in nine box land you know and for anyone listening who's not familiar with a nine box it's basically part of understanding where your organization sits from a performance perspective and it is kind of like placing people within these categories so they're like strong performer it's all based on like potential and performance that's the easiest way to break it down but solid performers is really where the majority of an organization should sit and then there should be some people who are not meeting expectations or have low potential there should be people who are you know maybe have a ton of exceptional performance but low potential because they don't really want to do anything beyond what they're doing and that's totally okay and then there are those superstars but not everyone can be a superstar and not everyone can have low potential low performance and this makes me think about something that you said in the beginning about 
how there's this, you know, drive or feeling of need for homeostasis and everyone kind of having the same thing, whatever that thing is, like the same uh, goals, the same objectives, the same drive. And and the reality is, is that people are all are they're all going to be across the map. They're going to be folks who want to be drive for the highest possible part of their career as quickly as possible. There are going to be people who don't want any more responsibility that they have. And there are going to be people who are potentially just not meeting expectations. And it made me think initially about leaders who, for I, I'm going to use this term very loosely, but like force change on organizations based on what they feel is best, but not necessarily based on where their teams sit and making changes just because they either, you know, maybe it's a control thing, maybe it's a power thing, or just because they are not asking the right questions of the people who work with them to get their feedback, or maybe they are asking questions and they're not listening. And those changes that happen, whether they're organizational changes or leadership changes, I find that people who are making those decisions without a ton of context, without taking doing their due diligence to make sure that it's a change that's one, necessary, two, worth their time, and three, going to support people throughout the organization at every level, they're making a lot of changes a lot of the time. And it's just kind of this like rapid fire of, oh, well, this didn't work. Let's try this. This didn't work. Let's try this, which can be fine in some circumstances. But especially the higher you go in your role, the higher you are up in your role, the more rapid fire your changes are, the more unstable the organization can feel. And so it just made me think about how how we can help those folks, how, how we can hopefully at some point in our career say, hey, let's, let's slow down. Don't push the button yet. Let's think through this. Because I, I'll admit, I am not always the person thinking through everything, but I have people around me who do. And that is why you have to surround yourself with people who are different from you. Because if I'm only surrounding myself with rapid fire change makers, then, you know, down go the columns that that keep the house up, right? Um, but how can we, is there is there an anecdote here? How can we help those who are not doing their due diligence to create change that feels good throughout the organization? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because um, in in the Colby Index, there's sort of four major categories for how people instinctively um, begin begin the process of solving a problem. We use all four, but usually people have one that's there. Sort of, we call it initiating. They're in, it's how it's how I start. So, one of the categories is quick start, and these are people who that um, if if it's their instinct to initiate in this way, they're they're the ones who are constantly wanting to try to change things. Like they're like, oh, let's try this, and let's try this, and let's do this, and they're and it's not just it's not just a lot of ideas. It's also the pace of ideas, and. When you get someone like that in an organization and they're in a position of power, the most important thing you could do is make sure that they know that that's how they lead, right? So that, and make sure that they know that they can create a lot of, wreak a lot of havoc that is unnecessary and isn't going to, isn't going to get them to their goals any faster. And so some Mm -hmm. of it is, it's an education process, but it's helping people really understand that instinctive part of who they are. We, because we don't often talk about it, um, 
people people aren't always in touch with it right they're like oh no i'm you know i'm just that's what i do like i come in and i you know and i create uncertainty and and then and then things work out and then we go forward and then i create more uncertainty and like it's great for them right it's great to be it's great to be at the top in that instance right but it's terrible to be underneath that and um and so for organizations for people it's really important for them to understand what it is that they bring it's it's an amazing instinct um, and it, it, and it can really add value to an organization, but used in the wrong way, it can also, mm-hmm. it can also really be the downfall of an organization. And when you, when you are rewarded for that over and over again, then you think, okay, this is it, right? Everybody should be like me. And that's mm-hmm. the other piece of it is right. When, as we move up in an organization, we think, well, everybody should be like me. That's why we have performance reviews so that I can tell everyone that they should be that's like me. very scary. Yes, I know. Right. I don't want to be so, surrounded by everyone that's like me. That's for sure. Right. Right. Well, exactly. Exactly. And but but by the way, it actually for a very short period of time can feel very good. Like when you're in a room mm-hmm. of people who you are completely in sync with their instincts, like you are you you're you're all going after that problem in the exact same way. It actually feels amazing. You're not going to get there because you're all doing yeah, it no. the same way. Right. But right. It's going to feel in that moment, you're going to feel like you met your people. And, and it's great. Right. But it isn't, it isn't a recipe for a great, for a great organization. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think, so I think it's really important. Um, uh, You know, I didn't come on here to like push the Colby index, but I I do think that the Colby (laughs) index really helps you understand that. And it, it, it is one of the things that helps me be better at change in an organization, right? Because I go in and I can, I can see sort of things like the instinct playing a role that other organizations usually won't see because it's not something that they're, they're really thinking about And like you said about changes, making sense, changing for the sake of change. There are people whose instinct is to change for the sake of change because they need that in some way. It, it, Hmm. it's part of how they get through the day, right? It's, but it's not part of how everybody else gets through the day necessarily. Right. And when you, and when they meet someone who it is part of how they get through the day, they love that. But but it's not helpful necessarily. Mm-hmm. But it is yeah. this this whole idea of, you know, somebody once said to me, uh, we change all the time. You know, people, people are, people don't need, I, cause I was talking to them about, you know, maybe educating people more about sort of different ways of approaching change. And they said, oh no, we're, we're good at it. And I said, are, are you? And they said, well, yeah, we do it all the time. I'm like, well, that doesn't make you good at it. Yeah, that right. just makes you doing it all the time. It just means you're changing. Said, no, 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 no. So I said, well, you know, how often do they, how often do your changes like really meet the objectives? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Cause we're just on to the next change. I'm like, well, there you go. Oh my gosh. Like you're just changing. <laughs> Nothing's meeting its objectives and right. it doesn't matter because you're just going on you're to the next change. So, anyway. so, right. That's right. And what's great about that for everybody is nobody has to actually do a lot of stuff, right? Because it doesn't matter if it fails, right? Mm-hmm. So people are going to adopt or not adopt. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. Because they know that it's going to last for 15 minutes and then you're going to go on to the next thing. Totally. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting way of being. And then of course, then there's the opposite, right? The opposite is we never change. Like we never change. And then when a change comes along, you're like, everybody's in shock, right? Because they don't know what to do with themselves. And so there's that piece of it as well. Like neither end of the spectrum is good or healthy for organizations. There has to be something in the middle, but you do have to approach it as, not like how many changes can we make, but what are the changes that really make sense? And into what context are we implementing, introducing those changes, right? Why, why would I introduce a change 
into an organization that's just gone through major change. Like now with the pandemic, organizations are like, well, we don't understand. People aren't as, you know, people are really resistant to change. Really? That's a surprise? Right. Like, right. I just don't understand why right. that's a surprise to anybody. Well, like, we've been through this like unbelievable change. People's lives have been completely changed. And then you want to introduce like all this other change because you've been waiting all this time because of the pandemic. And now you have all this pent up things you want to do. And so now you're just going to rapid fire do them. And you're wondering why people are resistant. I'll tell you why they're resistant because they're exhausted. Right. And, and not taking that into consideration is unconscionable. And that's why your people are leaving mm-hmm. you because right. they don't, they don't, they're not, well, the younger generation, the older generation may just stay because what are they going to, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're afraid, but yeah, but yeah. the younger ones, they're, you know, the great resignation, like, I, I think it's like the great rethinking of why I would stay with you. Like, mm-hmm. if you're going like, to mm-hmm. do this to me, you know, yes, I, I, me I we were all talking about this rebrand from the great resignation to the great reshuffle. And I was part of that. I, I left a, a job where I was for almost five years and I loved it. And I went, um, to this other job and I was there for only three months. I was like, Oh, this is not good. Nope. Mm -mm, Leaving. And now I'm at the job where I am now. Actually we're recording on my one year anniversary in this, in this new company, but thank you. Um, but it's really, really true. I used to think at first, like maybe a year and a half ago, I used to think, well, if we were so adaptable with the pandemic, we can continue to be to adapt. We can continue to change. But in recent years, seeing and or in recent months, I should say, seeing that companies aren't even willing to make changes, I'm like, oh, well, this it's true. It does make sense that after this massive life changing change that w- was traumatic, was intense, was life altering. Some people are still experiencing the effects of COVID, of course, in many ways that naturally people want some semblance of stability now. And yet at the same time, what's so interesting is they want this stability with all of the demands that were met during COVID. And that's where companies are are having some fatal mistakes that they are thinking that they can go back to the way things were. So another change, if you ask me, a change that's probably unwanted because stability doesn't mean that what it was before is more stable. It just means that there has to be a new stability found in this new environment. But, you know, a lot of companies out there are saying we're going back to the office. You can't work remotely or you can't even work for hybrid. And people are like, hey, hey, wait, slow down. I didn't say I wanted to go back to the office. I just said I wanted more stability. I still want flexibility. I still want to work remotely. And so it's a very, very interesting place to be as a society to watch companies struggle with change, employees, people struggle with change, and then them doing this dance, trying to figure that out. Yes. And you know, what's so interesting about that is that um, there's this whole set of ideas around, well, if we, you know, we, we need to, we need to be in person in order to have our culture. Mm, what does mm-hmm. that mean? Right. And, and I, I, I like, I don't agree with that on any level. And I think, I think it's basically executives who need to have people around them who say, okay, everybody has to come back to the office. Cause right. I, and they want to like see what's happening. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Well, it's, 
they want to see what's happening. Why? Like, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, they want to see what's happening. Like you're going to walk around and actually see, like, what are you going to see? You're going to see people like at their computers. Like that's what you want to see. Like I could send you a picture of me at my computer every day. (laughs) That's what you want to see. It's like, but it's like this weird idea that culture is only created or formed when you're in person. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in person isn't important on some level for in general. Right. But there's plenty of people in the world who don't need to be in person to form a culture. You know, when in my, in my dissertation so many years ago, I, what I said was that culture is a verb, right? Culture is a verb. We are culturing every day, every action that we take on behalf of our company, whether we're in person or we're not in person creates the culture. Mm -hmm. And what companies fail to realize is, well, you know, they said, oh, well, our culture isn't, um, isn't the same. Well, no, your fantasy of the culture isn't, isn't the same. Like the reality mm-hmm. of the culture is what happened when you all went remote. That's the reality of your culture. Right. And people reinforce that every day. People got up, they did the work that they needed to do. They were productive. They had the conversations that they needed to have. And yeah, did they not meet each other in the coffee room? Yes, they didn't. But they had virtual coffees. And yes, did you have to plan more? Yes. And for some people that was good. And for some people it wasn't so good for some people not being in person was devastating. And so I, I appreciate that. And Mm -hmm. I I think that those people should be, should be back at work if they need to be in person in order to be productive. But for a lot of people, it wasn't that it was about, it was about really being able to concentrate and focus and really shine and do the things that they were good at and not have to get caught up in all the things that they weren't so good at. Right. And and I think um, I, I do think that is it is this myth about it, that culture gets created when you're in person. Uh, it, culture gets created every time you do something yes. and gets, it gets reinforced. And so really thinking about that, I think, is important. And I think that companies think, well, if we're back in person, then I can, you know, then I can see what you're doing. Well, you know, I, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> all you know we all went remote right everybody was amazingly productive it was amazing yeah. people, were, people were like oh this is great we never have to go back blah blah and then all of a sudden somebody said oh well i don't know if i could trust you i, I mean i know i've been trusting you for a year and a half to do it right. remotely but now i'm not now i'm not so sure like are you really are you really working like the way that you should be and maybe if you were in person like you'd work even harder like that's ever going to happen so it's just like this weird kind of trap that we fell back into. We really didn't change our mindset. The crisis forced us to do something, but companies didn't change their mindsets. Leaders and companies didn't change their mindsets about, about trusting people. And they didn't change their mindsets about, about really what it takes to be great at the work that you do. And there are, by the way, there are leaders who, who did change their mindset. I'm not, I don't want to be for sure. Of course. Right? There are leaders who did, but there's plenty of leaders. The, the leader of Bloomberg, I'll just give this an example, like and and other some of the other financial companies, like they they didn't change their mindsets at all. Like they just want butts and seats, and they want they want you to be there for really long hours, whether they pay you for all those hours or not, because it makes them feel like you are working. But I'll tell you what, this is what I tell people who are workaholics. If you plan to be at the office for 12 hours a day, you're going to have to, you're going to figure out your day into 12 hours, but you're not going to do 12 hours of work. You're going to do eight right. hours of work. 
but you're going to take a, like a longer coffee break and you're going to have a longer lunch and you're going to take another break in the afternoon. And so you're going to yeah. fit in those eight hours into 12 hours for what? Just do your eight hours. Stop mm-hmm. taking long lunches. Stop taking long coffee breaks. Do your work and go home. Right. So it's, it's just, it's just going to expand. If you're, if you say to me, I'm working 18 hours a day, I'm going to say you're not doing 18 hours of work. Right. Like, what are you doing? Stop doing eight hours of work in 18 hours. Doesn't even right. make any sense. The I, don't even, I don't even know that eight hours is necessary. Like if you're really, you know, the problem is, is that meetings really break down productivity. If you're in meetings, you're not actually necessarily able to work unless you are workshopping or actually physically working in those meetings. Meetings are such a time waste. If I could cancel every single meeting that I have at work, I probably would. Because I I just think, you know, this is the, the whole asynchronous approach coming out that, you know, can people may, okay, maybe you have to meet a couple times to ideate or to brainstorm or to discuss something but you shouldn't be meetings back to back because then you're not actually working. And then you're spending 40 hours in meetings, 40 hours working, and you're just going to burn out from both ends. So I, um, I think that it's true. The mindset needs to change in order for anything else to be able to change. I mean, if, if leaders have not adapted their mindset to a transformed workforce and, a, a to continue to transform, then, I mean, we're always going to see or be able to juxtapose early adopters, companies that are changing and have new mindsets to these laggards, like the the firms that you've mentioned, who just want to see butts in seats. And you know what, at the end of the day, there might be a person that's right for that environment versus a person that's right for the other, as long as there's an array and some choice there. But I, I'm of the belief that companies need to just allow the employee to decide. And if the employee wants to be the butt in the seat kind of employee, then let them be that. If they want to work remotely and work flexible hours, let them be that. And it's up to people to be able to work through the differences in belief and perspective around that. Yeah, that would require managers to be better people managers. Yes. Yeah. So Absolutely. another hot button of mine. Another, right. <laughs> right. And, and it really comes out to it really comes to play into play w- with change. Right. In that, in that, you know, when I walk into an organization and they're, let's say they're struggling with a change, the first thing I look at is their managers, because your managers are going to make or break your change. There's just no way, no two ways about it. And they're either helping you or they're not helping you. It is pretty, it is pretty cut and dried. And, uh, and, 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 um, managers as people managers is not really as valued in many organizations. Like in some organizations, it's really valued, but in in many organizations, it is not. So they want you to be a people manager, but they also want you to do a body of work, which I don't have a, I don't have necessarily an issue with, but you do as a people manager have to balance that. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to devote enough time to your people because you're getting your work, really getting your work done through them. And uh, and we put a lot of people in manager positions that should not be people managers. And then we don't train them. Thousand percent. Right. And, uh, and we don't, we don't really help them see really how to be the best people managers. And often they haven't had a great people manager themselves. So they don't even have somebody they, they can even know what that model like. themselves after. Right. And so I think, I think it's a, from a change perspective, um, it's critical, right? If you're, if your people managers are not good people managers during times of great change, you're in big trouble. 
Right. Because Absolutely. they're the ones that are going to, they're going to be the messengers. They're going to be the ones who are going to get information that will be important to the change that they need to pass forward. And if, if all they take out of this change, is that they just need to make their people change in some way. And, and they need to do that. However, they have to do it. Then, then that's usually not good for adoption. Right. And all change is about adoption of something, right? Adoption of a new process, adoption of a new system, adoption of a different way of looking at business. Like, the, so, so if you're just focused on making people get in line, you're you're not really there. Nobody's adopting anything. They're going to get in line until they get another job, or they're going right. to get in line and they're going to do the bare minimum. But it's not going to get you that return on your change that you thought you were going to get. And so, so really, really being able to have people managers who are great people managers who get the best out of their people who know how to motivate them who know that each person needs to be motivated in a slightly different way like all of those things if you don't have that and you're going into times of great change in your company you're you're in big trouble you just are and companies don't go back and look necessarily at how their change did and when they do often they'll lie to themselves about why it didn't work right and so And so that's sad also. And, uh, and, and so, but I do think that people managers is having great people managers is critical and it isn't something that companies focus on. It just isn't. Right. Right. And we saw during the pandemic, great people managers were still great people managers and terrible people managers were still terrible people managers. Right. The difference I think for the, their employees was now they didn't have to like be with them all the time. Right. They could just sort of right. go there and was do their distance. work. And, yeah. Right. That, that worked. Right. Well, Beth, thank you so, so much for all of your insight. I mean, uh, we said change. I should try and count the number of times we said change because (laughs) the reality is, is that if anyone took what I said seriously about drink every time you hear change, if they had any type of uh, adult beverage, they are probably not continuing listening to this episode, but I'm just obviously just kidding. Um, everyone knows, you know, it's, uh, it's not, it's five o'clock somewhere, but not five o'clock when this episode comes out. So anyway, Beth, why don't you tell everyone where they can connect with you when, where they can learn more about what you do, um, and all of the things that you've shared with us today. So first of all, people can email me. My emails, my email is Beth at Audra, A-D-R-A change, all one word.com. And, uh, and then I have a website, audrachangearchitects.com. And of course you can connect to me on LinkedIn and uh, I'm always happy to have more connections and, and to expand the conversation. And um, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. And I feel like we've talked about so many different things that are sort of on the, on the inside of change, but also on the outside of change, which mm-hmm. is refreshing because often people think I just focus only on change, but I, it, I look at organizations holistically and there's so many other things going on that affect change, but aren't necessarily sort of directly related to the change. So I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And, and for all of your insights, again, we'll make sure that all of your details are in the show notes so that folks can connect with you. And, uh, thank you so much again. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, just before you go, don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you are the first to hear when an episode drops each week. And maybe leave a five-star review and a comment about how much you loved this episode. Plus, if you have someone in mind who would really enjoy this episode, make sure you share it with them. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.